Hey, listen, that's a great song. I picked that one. Could you tell? Let me show you why it's a great song. Turn to Leviticus 25. And it has to do with the stuff we've been studying. Because we've been set free. We've been released from our slavery. Uh, We've been uh, adopted as sons. And look at Leviticus 25 and see what uh, this jubilee is all about. What is the world? What in the world is the year of jubilee? The year of jubilee has come. Well, look what the commandment says. This is on page 195 in your Spirit of the Reformation Study Bible. In verse 8, God says through Moses, Count all seven Sabbaths of years. Seven times seven years. That's 49, gentlemen. So that the seven Sabbaths of years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each one of you is to return to his family property and each to his own clan. The fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the uh, untended vines. For it is a jubilee and is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. In this year of jubilee, everyone is returned to his own property. So the deal was that Israel was divided out among all the clans, all the tribes uh, and the families. Everybody had their family property. And... uh, through 50 years or 49 years, that would include a couple of generations. Some people squandered what they had. Uh, some people grew what they had and bought adjoining property and they've become very wealthy. Every 50 years, we all go back to where we started. And everybody in the land would be uh, reconnected to the land. Everybody would have the means of production again. It was a way of solving generational poverty. And wonderful uh, concept that God gave Israel. He says, you're a family. Let's act like family. And although some of you will be very prosperous and successful, we're not going to do so at the sake of uh, your your neighbor through the generations. So we don't end up with whole neighborhoods where people have no access to the means of economic power. Everybody's re-empowered every 50 years. Isn't that very gracious of the Lord? Well, then turn to Isaiah 61 and see how the prophet takes this concept of jubilee and freedom and says, uh, this, this concept is deeper than you think. It's not just every 50 years in Israel, but look what the ultimate meaning of it is when he talks about the servant of the Lord. This is Isaiah 61 on page 1181. Isaiah 61, verse 1. See what Isaiah says in prophesying about this servant of the Lord who is coming. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What is that year? That's the Jubilee year. And the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. And so on. Now, turn to Luke chapter 4, and this would be page 
51. And this, in Luke's Gospel, is Jesus' first teaching account. It's in his hometown of Nazareth, you'll remember. It says in verse 16, this is Luke 4, 16, He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. This is the the text that the Lord chose for the day. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What is that year? That's the year of Jubilee. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus was saying that his very presence and his ministry was the fulfillment of the year of Jubilee. Now, what's really interesting is where Jesus stopped reading in Isaiah 61. He concludes with, You see the verse there, verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But if you go back to Isaiah 61, you'll see the next half verse says, and the day of vengeance of our God. So apparently Jesus stopped before the day of vengeance. Well, why is that? Because when Jesus comes, it's the year of Jubilee. When He comes back, it's the day of vengeance. So we're in the year of Jubilee, and one day the day of vengeance is coming when the judge of all the earth shall appear before us. So this concept of jubilee, this is all, I'm giving you all this simply to justify why I selected the hymn I did this morning. (laughs) That's the reason that's such a wonderful hymn. The year of jubilee has come, come the ransom of the Lord, come home. You're free. And that's what our freedom is. We've been re-empowered. We've been given back the land that we squandered. And that land is the new heavens and the new earth. And you're going to find that when that new heavens and new earth comes and all of its beauty, you've got your plot. The Lord has given you. And you will be reconnected to the land because of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. That's freedom. That's freedom from slavery. And we're grateful for it. Now, back to Galatians. Oh, yes, Galatians. That's the book we're studying. Go back to chapter 4. And we're going to pick up with verses 8 through 20. Now, we've seen that the Lord has shown us that As a result of our faith in Jesus Christ, we are all sons, every one of us. And uh, we're sons and daughters of God. And because we're sons, we're heirs. And we've been released from bondage. We've been adopted as His children. We've been made His where He's very affectionate toward us. He loves us more than we've ever loved our children. And we do not then submit ourselves to an old way of religion when God Himself has made made Himself fully known in Christ, has given Him to us, and we're to walk in Him and He in us, that's that's where life is. So we don't submit ourselves to rituals and rules and regulations as the essence of our religion. The essence of our religion is, is a relationship with Christ. And we're free because of that. Now, what Paul is going to do in these verses ahead of us is Uh, he's going to just rack his brain and say, I'm trying to figure out why in the world you wouldn't want what I offered you. 
you took it and then you changed your mind and went back. I just don't get it. Normally when we read the Apostle Paul in his epistles, we think of him as being, for example, in Romans, just imminently rational, doctrinal, systematic, logical, and he is. But Paul is also very passionate. And there are those moments when he just breaks out in an ad hominem argument. And that's what this one is. He just, it's a, ad hominem just means to the man. It's not necessarily intellectual and logical. It's just man to man. It's sort of passionate. It's sort of emotional. And he's making one of those kinds of arguments here because he is, he's fired up in case you hadn't noticed already in Galatians. Well, let's look at it, uh, verses 8 through 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always and not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Think Paul's upset? Okay, let's, let's notice several things from this text. And uh, I mean, the main thing to notice here, if, uh, aside from the comments that we'll be looking at here, the main thing is the gospel is so important. It's important for you. It's important for me. It's important for everybody that we know. It's important for our children and our grandchildren. It's important for our friends, our siblings, our parents. And the question for us to ask ourselves as we look at how seriously the apostle is about this and how much he devotes himself to the welfare of these Galatians, has, has the gospel grasped you like that yet? When you look at somebody, how do you assess their their life. Is it by the job they have or the amount of money they have or the degrees that they have? Or is it whether they're in Christ and really enjoying Him? When you size up a life, how do you size it up? When you look at yourself, what's important about you? I mean, can't you see with the apostle here in this, there's one thing that's important. And for these Galatians that he loved, there's one thing he longs for them to have. And if you don't have that, everything else is a loss. If you do have that, it's the only thing that really matters. Is that the way that you assess your life? Is it the way that you assess the life of your friends? 
Is it the way that you're looking at your friends who don't know Christ? Is, is that burden on your heart for them? That's what Paul is carrying here. He said, I'm like a mother in childbirth. Now, gentlemen, I don't know if you've been around a mother when she was in childbirth. I have five times. And I learned after the first time, don't ever go into the labor room wearing a tie. <laughs> Come here, Budra, what'd you do that to me for? You know, all kinds of things. She grabbed my tie, you know. Don't wear a tie when you go in the labor room. You could get choked to death. So you learn that that's a very extreme moment for a human being when she's in childbirth. So Paul says, I'm like a mother in childbirth. I'm laboring until Christ has formed in you. And I think this, you know, above all, we, we see how important Christ is to life with someone who really knows. Paul knows Christ. And he knows that if you don't have him, and if you're not walking with him, you're missing all of life. And if you are, you really needn't worry about the details. That's the essence of this message. But let's look at it. Let's observe some other things about it, both in how we can relate to others who teach us, like the Galatians related to Paul, and how we can relate to those who are learning from us. Let's look at this. First of all, We've got to remember the bondage of unbelief. He says, formerly, when you did not know God. And gentlemen, we often underestimate what the former life was like. Sometimes, you know, we'll laugh about it. I mean, sometimes that's better than crying, I suppose. But, you know, when I think about some of my earlier, earlier years before I was converted at age 25... I look back on those and I can make certain jokes about it. You know, did this, did that, acted like an idiot, uh, did things that I hope my children never even think of and all this kind of thing. But down deep inside, what I'm saying is what a waste. 25 years, half of a jubilee, you know, wasted, just wasted. And uh, remember what it was like. And I remember the Sunday mornings, not in church, but kind of stumbling down Rugby Road, University of Virginia, you know, hung over, smelling all the vomit all around the sidewalk from the night before. That's what they call a party. And uh, just just the darkness of it, just the uselessness of it, the lostness of it. You ever get that back in your system and remember that? And think, you know, gosh, that, that was true bondage. That was darkness. That was going nowhere. That was depressing. And it was. Remember the bondage of unbelief. And here's how he puts it. A... In verse 8, you were enslaved. He says, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. You were enslaved to something that's not a god. Now, it's good to be enslaved to the real God. Because being enslaved to Him is to be a son and to be loved by Him. But to be enslaved to a no god, that's a problem. Now, let's look over at 1 Corinthians, for example, and see how Paul deals with the, the whole idea of idols. Look at 1 Corinthians 8. And let's see what he says about these idols. Verse 4, So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is, this is verse 4, is nothing. Nothing at all in the world. And that there is no God but one. For even if there are Look at this, so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, 
as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So Paul says in verse 4, an idol is nothing. Verse 5, it's a so-called God. They're nothing. And when you serve any God other than the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you're serving a nothing. You're worshiping a nothing. You say, well, so what's the problem? So nothing, nothing. But, you know, what's the problem with that? Well, here's the problem. Uh, Keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians. You've already lost your finger in Galatians by now. But see if you can keep one in 1 Corinthians because we're coming back. But turn to the Psalms and look at Psalm 96 and you'll see the problem here. You'd think that Worshipping nothing is a nothing. What difference does it make? It's nothing anyway. Here's your problem. God doesn't like it. (laughs) Look at Psalm 96 where he says, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise His name. Proclaim His salvation day after day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds among all peoples. So he says, Your God is not just a tribal God. It's not just the Christian God. It's not just, you know, or in this day, it's not just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God of the world. All the nations, let all the nations worship Him. That means all those nations that worship other gods, let them stop worshiping those gods and let them worship the one true and living God, the God and Father of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Keep reading, verse 4. For great is the Lord... And most worthy of praise, He is to be feared above all gods. If He is God, there is to be no competition. He is to be feared above all the other no-gods, the so-called gods. Verse 5, look at this. For all the gods of the nations are idols. It's a play on words here. The word for God is Elohim. The word for idols is Elohim, little godlings. And he says, Elohim, the God of all, is greater than the little godlings around the world. For all the gods are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Now back to First Corinthians. So you see that from the very beginning... The, the God that we worship is claiming to be the only God. All the other gods are pretend gods. They're makeup gods. And they cause the true God to be very jealous. You're exchanging the glory of the living God for something that's not a God. Holding the true God in contempt. Now, that's a problem. But look what else occurs in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He's still talking about idol feasts. And in verse 18, he says, Consider the people of Israel. This is 1857, page 1857. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But look at this. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. 
And I do not want you to be participants with demons. This is, now, now go back to Galatians. This is what Paul is saying. When you choose a false religion or you choose a false god, ultimately what is happening is you're being enslaved by the devil himself. Actually, all false worship is devil worship because the devil's strategy is simply to supplant God with anything. If he can get you distracted from the one true and living God to anything, any religion, he's very happy about that. And he has about six major religions in the world, six major strategies, and then he has thousands of minor strategies to get people off of the God of glory and the God of grace. It's kind of scary, isn't it? And Paul is saying to them, this is what you were doing. You were actually in bondage to the devil himself. Now the classic example of that kind of bondage and how foolish it is, you get in Mark chapter 5 with the gathering demoniac. Remember Jesus goes to the other side. He goes where his mama told him never to go, over to the other side. That's where they worship devils over there. He goes over to the land of the Gerasenes and there comes across this man who's naked, screaming at the top of his lungs with chains hanging off his arms and his legs. His first convert in Gadara. Now, if I had that as my first convert here, they'd fire me. This naked guy coming down the middle of the aisle with chains hanging off. We got, you know, that preacher's drawing the wrong kind of crowd around here. This is a Presbyterian church. Well, that's exactly what Peter was thinking when Jesus got his first customer, this, this wild man, this crazy man. Now, think about it. We know that this man had demons in him. In fact, it looks as though he had 6,000 demons because when Jesus said, what is your name? And, of course, the demon had to obey him. He said, my name is Legion. And there were 6,000 soldiers in a, in a Roman legion. And then there were 2,000 pigs, and it looks as though three demons each went into those pigs, and they, they went off, and now they're screaming, shrieking, these, these pigs going off over the cliff into the abyss where they belong in the bottom of the lake. And then this demon, I mean, rather this former demoniac now, he's, he's, he's been exorcised. He puts on some clothes. He shuts up, and he sits down at the feet of Jesus in his right mind. Now, this is the picture. In the view of the world, the gathering demoniac was completely free before Jesus got there. He could do whatever he wanted to do. The Bible tells us that he used to beat people up. And whenever he wanted to beat somebody up, he went and beat them up. They tried to constrain him and take away his freedom. They tried to constrain him with iron, but he was free. He broke the iron. That's how free he was. And then when he got tired of beating other people up, we told he beat himself up. He would just cut himself. and He had freedom to do whatever he wanted to do. He could go wherever he wanted to. He didn't have to, to abide by the conventions of the day. People wore clothes. <clears throat> Forget that. I don't want to wear clothes. What are you going to do about it? So he did whatever he wanted to do. Now, there's the picture of freedom from the world's perspective. You can do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, however you want to do it. But now we see he was completely in bondage to 6,000 demons. And that is the irony of freedom as we see it in this world. Now, what is the gospel idea of freedom? 
having all your clothes on, following the important conventions of our own day with modesty and propriety, being in your right mind and being able to think clearly, and sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ, enslaved to Him and His teaching. There is freedom. So you see, it's the opposite of what the devil offers in many ways. And Paul is saying to these folks, you thought you had freedom. When you went to the pagan temples, you could have a prostitute, male or female, either one you wanted, and that was how you worshipped, and you could try to manipulate the gods, and you were very patriotic about it because every region has its primary gods, and so that's your connection to your fatherland as well as your connection to religion. It's all tied up, and it's your family god, so it's got your family and your country and your religion, and it's all. And you feel like, man, this, this is it. But he said it was bondage. You were in bondage to the devil. Don't forget where you came from. And remember the misery of it all. So why would you ever want to go back? That's what he's, he's doing. He said, just think about it for a moment and what, what it entailed and where it led you. And you will be disabused of the idea that you want to go back. Because as, as Jesus says in John 8 on this topic, he's talking to Jews. And the Jews said, he, he says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That is, if you, if you believe what I'm teaching you, you'll be set free. And they said, we don't need to be set free. We've never been enslaved. I don't know how in the world they could have said that. They were enslaved in Egypt. I mean, <laughs> is this not wild for a Jew to say he's never been enslaved when they carried them off and gouged out their eyes to Babylon? They had been enslaved in Egypt. They were enslaved by the Assyrians. I mean, they were like <laughs> their whole history was one of being exiled and enslaved and abused by other countries. And they have the gall to say to Jesus, don't... We're not enslaved. We're free men. And right then they were under the thumb of Rome. It's hilarious how blind you can be to your own darkness and slavery and the kind of rationalization that you can come up with. For, oh, I'm really happy. I, I, I'm done doing whatever I want to do. I'm on to my fourth wife right now, and, man, she's great in bed. And man, it's just great. I'm just watching this guy get older and older and older, thinking, how long is he going to be able to give me that speech? You know, I've had guys give me that speech, that speech. I'm just watching them now. They're just getting older and older. I'm just wondering, okay, so she's good in bed. How are you? You know, <laughs> 75, you know. So it, it's going to end somewhere, and you could play the game for a while, but it, it, eventually it doesn't play out very well. And Jesus said to them, no, you're not free. You're actually sons of the devil. Ah! That's when they stoned him, tried to stone him, because he told them the truth. You're, you actually have Judaism. You don't have God. You have a religion, but you're missing the one who's supposed to be worshipped. You're enslaved to these things. And that's the reason he went on to say to them, you killed the prophets. The prophets were coming from God. You were more committed to your religion than you were to God. He says, just remember where you came from. And Paul, of course, shows this in Romans 6. You're either enslaved to one or the other. Either grace is your master or legal regulation is your master. Either God is your master or the devil is your master. You must choose your master. So you were enslaved. But then B, notice he says in verse 9, but now, but now, now that you know God, that is, you were liberated. You were enslaved. But now you know God, or rather you're known by God. 
And it is your knowledge of Him and His knowledge of you that actually sets you free. You know how Jeremiah says, let not the, the wealthy man boast of his wealth, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his mind, but let him who boasts, let him who glories, glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the God who practices steadfast justice and righteousness in all the earth, says the Lord. So let our boast be in knowing and understanding Him. That's our boast. That's the kind of asset that we want to grow in our lives. It's a growing knowledge of Him because that is riches. That is wisdom. That, that is might. Let that be our boast. It's the knowledge of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ in His high priestly prayer in John 17 says, Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is life, he says. That's eternal life, is the knowledge of God and of His Son. And in Ephesians 1, when Paul prays for the Ephesians, he simply prays this way. It's, It's a longer prayer. But at the very beginning of that prayer, he says, I pray that you may know Him better. What a great prayer for yourself for your family, for your Sunday school class, that they may simply know Him better because there is life and there alone is freedom. So the Apostle Paul is saying, just take a moment while you're struggling with your religious commitments, take a moment and look back, see where you came from, and see what happened when you were liberated. Then he says, see, this is verses 9b through 11, so therefore returning is unthinkable. How is it? Explain this to me. What reason is there? What rationale could possibly be there that you are turning back? Turning back to those weak and miserable principles. Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I wasted my efforts on you. Now, This is most interesting, what Paul is saying here, because you'll notice he is saying that they're turning back to those weak and miserable principles. What are those weak and miserable principles? Those weak and miserable principles has to do with with what most scholars think was sort of the reigning religion of the day that was sort of pre-Gnostic, because Gnosticism hadn't really come become popular yet until the second century, but it's sort of pre-Gnostic thinking. That is that God is the ultimate spiritual essence There are eons of reality that emanate from Him until finally you get far enough away from Him, pure spirit, that you get down to earth. And that earth was made through these lesser gods away from God who's pure spirit because matter would contaminate Him. He's pure spirit. So it's from these eons of authorities that emanate from Him that matter is actually made. And that's the reason that we have the planets governing the history of the world. It's the planets who are the gods. So Jupiter is a god. Saturn is a god. And so these gods who emanate from ultimate godness, they actually create and govern the universe. And these are the weak and miserable principles. What the people had done in this pagan territory, they were listening to the Jewish synagogues And they took the Jewish observances and regulations and they melded it together with their paganism. 
Now, that's the Colossian heresy especially. But you can see it even here. And what Paul is saying is, you were in pagan temples. Now you're letting these Judaizers who say you need Christ and some regulations... And some people do that today. You know, well, you need this, but you also, you gotta get baptized our way. You, you gotta stop drinking completely. You gotta be on this political team. You got, you know, all these things you gotta do in addition to Christ to be a real Christian. <clears throat> and look what Paul is saying. When you do that, when you take these Judaistic principles, you are as much as going back to pagan idolatry. Now, this is a remarkable statement. He is, in fact, equating the religion of the Judaizers with paganism, and he's saying it's the same thing. Look what he says here. He says, you are observing special days and months and seasons and years. That's what Judaism does. He says, you you Galatians, you want to go to this, what you think is a new religion or a perfection of the Christian religion that I proclaimed to you sometime before. You think you're advancing and going forward because now you're taking on the Judaistic regulations so because you think you're going to know Christ better that way. No, that's not what you're doing. You're actually going back where you came from into bondage again. And I want to say to you, when you add something to Jesus Christ as your righteousness before God, you're not advancing. You're going back to paganism. It's a remarkable thing. I can't imagine how angry those Judaizers were when he said this. He was equating their religion. I have to say, every religion that is not based on faith in Jesus Christ alone for your righteousness before God is going back to those weak and miserable principles. Every single one of them. And that doesn't make other religious advocates very happy. But it's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. Now you'll see from your Old Testament This is not anything new. People often want to go back. Try out Exodus 14 with me for just a moment. And you'll see that, you know, people, people had just, just recently been delivered from their slavery. They're kind of on the way now to their freedom. And what do you see them saying in verse 10? Well, Pharaoh's approaching. He's got 600 chariots. He's looking real mean right now. And they're looking very vulnerable. So, of course, they're under real trial. And so they begin to say, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians. This is page 119. Marching after them. And they were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Didn't take long, did it? Take me back, boys. I'm used to that. I know how to live there in that dark, enslaved world. Take me back to slavery. Oh, how sweet it was. How wonderful. It's ridiculous. And then go on over to chapter 16 in Exodus. And here they get manna and quail. And that's not enough either. Look in verse 3. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Oh, they said, we would just sat around, watch the Super Bowl, drank beer and ate popcorn. It was just wonderful. Just a wonderful life we had back there in Egypt. Oh, yeah, right. 
That's how you think when things get a little tough. Oh, see, the Lord, Lord's not very good to me. I should have just, just kept doing what I was doing. This isn't helping me a bit, we say. Well, how long are you going to give the Lord to prove that His promises come true? How long? A day? A week? A year? Ten years? What's the appropriate amount of time? I'll tell you what the appropriate amount of time is. Your whole life. And when you get to the end of it, you will see that the full reward comes your way and not until then. So how long are you going to give Him? Your whole life. And that's what it means to follow Him by faith. You believe Him. You trust Him. That the reward is going to come to you at the end. If He gives you blessings during this life, great. But that wasn't the promise. The promise was that you'll have, you'll have the inheritance of Abraham. You'll have it all, the cosmos, in due time. So we get impatient. We want to turn back. And you'll see in Second Peter chapter 2, Peter says it's like dogs returning to their vomit. And we're all tempted to do this. Martin Luther, on this text, he says, it's like, it's like a dog, he says, running along a stream with a piece of meat in its mouth, and he sees his reflection in the stream. And so he bites after the meat in the reflection. And what does he lose? The meat and the reflection. He says, that's what, that's what we're like when we leave the God of all grace and the Lord Jesus Christ, we're tempted to go to other things, we lose everything. It's, it's, it's a, just an image. It's not reality that you're going after. It's a shadow of things uh, that are real. So why would we ever want to return? Well, could I just give you a couple of speculations on this before we go to the second major topic here? You remember when Jesus was sowing seed? He told a parable of the sower and of the seed. And there were four soils. And he said, because the disciples wanted to know, I mean, Jesus, if you're it, why is it that everybody's not clamoring after you and following you? Why is it just, you know, us 12, you know? We have these big crowds, but we don't see anybody really devoting themselves and laying down their life for you. What's wrong? Why are the Pharisees so upset with you? Why are the Sadducees opposed to you? Why is the government so opposed to you? What is the problem? And Jesus says, he gives this parable to explain it. He says, let me tell you about the sower and the seed. There's nothing wrong with the sower and there's nothing wrong with the seed, which is the gospel. What's wrong is the soil where the seed's landing. He says there are four types of soil. First one is you have to sow the seed out on the path where the farmer works and the bird comes along right away, gets that seed and takes it off. The, the person never even hears, really. They hear physically, but they don't hear affectionately or intellectually. He says the second soil, the seed actually goes into the soil, but it's very shallow. There's rock right under the shallow soil. So as soon as the, the seed begins to come above ground and grow, the sun scorches it. And that sun represents persecution, opposition, hostility. And the plant just withers and dies because the soil is shallow. So the first reason that we turn back is that we're shallow. We were really interested in this religion thing because we were attracted to the people who went to church there. Maybe they'd make good clients or good patients or something, you know. Well, I'll just get in with those people. Looks like they're having fun. And then troubles begin to come. And we say, I'm going back to Egypt. I didn't get in it for this deal. I mean, you guys say you're in this to die for Jesus? Hey, forget that. That wasn't the deal with me. They were shallow. They never understood. They never took the seed of the gospel deeply into their lives and they turned back. 
The second reason people turn back, I think, is represented by the third soil. You remember Jesus said some seed is sown among soil that's deep enough and it grows up, the plant does, but then the soil wasn't cultivated. There are weeds there and those weeds grow up and choke the good plant and those weeds are greed and the material things of this life. And so the second type of person that turns back seems to me to be the person who gets into it who really intellectually believes in Jesus Christ, but then he begins to be swamped with some of the privileges of life. It may be that he's a very prestigious person. It may be that he's a very respected person. It may be that he gets a lot of money. It may be that he has a lot of power. It may be that he's just everything is just really going well for him. And he just spends all of his weekends going to visit all of his great estates that he's got planted all over the world or seeing all his grandchildren. He's just busy just enjoying his family and he just simply abandons his first commitment. He's very privileged. So in the first case, he's persecuted. In the second case, he's privileged. And it seems to me that in both of those cases, I see men who will come into the church and profess their faith and then they turn back. They're either the second soil or the third soil. It seems to me that, you know, if I were to answer the Apostle Paul's question, how is it that you're turning back? It makes no sense. But the Lord Jesus taught us actually what happens. It doesn't make any sense. It's just what men do. But then secondly, as we turn to verses 12 through 16, he says, not only remember the bondage of unbelief, but remember your love for your teachers. The Apostle Paul is saying, don't you remember... (laughs) how you used to listen to what I taught you? Don't you remember that you really took it seriously? Don't you remember that we had a great relationship, that you trusted what I was teaching you? Don't you remember those days? Go back to that. Remember what that was like. Why am I having to oppose you now? Why am I having to hit you over the head with a sledgehammer? Why am I having to hit you with a two before? You're acting like a mule. You used to act like a brother. What is wrong with you? What's happened to you? He's saying, I haven't changed anything. What what has changed about you? And he's basically saying to them in this this section, why are you so fickle? You remember when the Apostle Paul went to Lystra in Acts chapter 14 and they healed a lame man and immediately they said, that must be Zeus. (laughs) And... uh, uh, they said of Barnabas. And they said of the Apostle Paul, well, since he's the preacher, he must be Hermes, two great gods. And they got the priests from the pagan temple and they brought bulls out to them to sacrifice offerings to them because they were gods. And Paul and Barnabas ran to the crowd and they tore their robes and they said, look, we're humans just like you are. We're not gods. Stop this. Stop it. We want to tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who did this healing. Let us tell you about him and turn from your gods. Well, about that time, some Jews who were angry at Paul for his gospel from, I think, Iconium, they came into Lystra and stirred up the crowd against Paul and Barnabas. And in the next minute, now they're stoning Paul and Barnabas. (laughs) It's just amazing. They start off by worshiping them, and then they end up by stoning them. Fickle. And when we're not rooted in Christ, when all of our Christianity is simply going somewhere to church or to a Bible study or having been born into a family with a godly grandmother or whatever it is, when that's our attachment, we have no roots. We're just a 
uh, we're just a weed blowing in the wind, whichever way the wind blows. And Paul is just astonished because when he was a Judaizer, not a Judaizer, but a Jew, when he was committed to killing Christians, he was committed. I mean, he went out there and got them and he put them in jail and finished them off. He was serious. And when he became a Christian, he was serious. He just doesn't understand these people who are not serious about ultimate things in life. How could they be so fickle? But as we look at this, his main point is, how can you be so fickle? But let's look at this relationship between teacher and student, which I think is very important for us because so many of you are teaching in various places, and we're all learners. And let's think about this as being teachers and learners. How is it that in the gospel we're to relate? You'll notice he says, I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. And the first thing is, he says, you imitated uh, them. You imitated your teachers. And teachers should do that. We should, the Apostle Paul said seven times in his epistles, follow me, imitate me, do as I do. And on one occasion, he kind of summarized it. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. And gentlemen, if you're going to be in, te- you're going to be involved in teaching spiritual things in your Sunday school classes, some of you are pastors, some of you are teaching uh, other small groups. If you're teaching, you have to lay your life out there. You can't just present a lesson. You must present yourself. There's a big difference. Now, you don't talk about yourself because it's not about you. But in a moment's notice, you're able to illustrate the text by your own experience of the text. In other words, you're basically saying, This is what has happened to me. I just told you a few moments ago. This liberation happened to me. That kind of intuitive connection with the text has to be presented to the people. In other words, the text is presented to the people through a life. That spiritual teaching, and I would suggest to you, it's teaching, period. I mean, any of you who got excited about chemistry or biology or math or philosophy... I can almost guarantee how it happened. Some, you came under the tutelage of somebody who thought chemistry was at the heart of the universe. Or someone who thought philosophy was the greatest thing, greatest gift ever given. You picked up some enthusiasm from somebody somewhere, probably. That lesson came through their life. And tr- certainly it's that way with spiritual teaching. And so if you're going to teach, no matter what the venue, one person or a hundred people, It is something coming through your life so that at any given moment you say, well, look, if you don't understand this, just come with me. (laughs) If you don't understand how to relate to your wife, just come with me. Come live in my house for a week. Hmm, don't know, huh? That's the way that we've got to aspire to live so that our life is the best illustration of what we're teaching. That's what the Apostle Paul could say to them. You imitated me and that was a good thing. Secondly, You indulged your teachers. He said, I came to you because of illness, but my illness wasn't something that turned you off. You didn't treat me with contempt or scorn. Now, what was his illness? Well, some are speculating it probably had something to do with his eyes because he says later later in this text, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. So it seems as though he may be saying that he had an eye disease of some sort. 
and was deeply troubled by it. And they loved him so much, they would have taken their eyes out and given their eyes to him if they could have helped him. Now, that's a speculation. We don't know what the illness was. But certainly, they indulged him. And gentlemen, you know you've done that with your teachers. I mean, I think back on some of the quirky teachers and coaches I had. I mean quirky people. But I loved them, and I learned from them. And their quirks became all the more endearing, didn't they? Didn't they with you? These quirky people who influenced and shaped your life, you loved them for their quirks. You didn't hold them in contempt. And Paul says it was that way with you when you were tied to the gospel. Look, thirdly, he says you revered them. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Gentlemen, let me just warn you, those of you who are teachers, you must be extremely careful not to break trust with God's children. God says, these are my little ones. And if you lead any of these little ones astray, you're better off to take a huge millstone, put it around your neck, and jump off the bridge out here and go to the bottom of the Mississippi. You'll be a whole lot better off than if you gain the trust of God's people and then you lead them astray with the trust they gave you. It's an amazing thing. You, they revere you, you who are fathers. People develop their ideas of who God is primarily, first of all, from you. And none of us present a perfect image. We must all tell our children, you've got a lot to unlearn about fatherhood when it comes to knowing God as your father. I did, I did the best I knew how in some ways, but I'm a sinner. And I made many mistakes. You're going to have to relearn fatherhood. Well, fine. That's a humble speech, unnecessary speech. But we're also challenged to present fatherhood in the best way that we can because your little children do take you as an angel of God. They do take you as, uh, as they would Christ. I remember in the second grade, I couldn't think of anything my dad had ever done wrong. Now, when I got older, it, I was struggling to come up with something he did right. <laughs> But when I was young, I couldn't think of anything he had done wrong. I mean, I couldn't think of one sin the man committed. I wondered why he needed to go to church. Now, that's how distorted people's views are. And Paul says, you were treating me that way as your teacher. What happened to you? And then you enjoyed them. What has happened to all your joy? You used to have joy with Christian teachers. What happened to you? And... Gentlemen, there ought to be joy. There ought to be joy in your teaching. There ought to be joy in the fellowship where you're teaching. You ought to be deriving pleasure from the benefits that God brings us right now in this life. We have eternal life right now. And we ought to be enjoying it right now. And you ought to be encouraging the groups that you're teaching to enjoy it right now. And they ought to be able to see that you're enjoying it right now. What happened to all the joy? We had joy. And notice that you loved your teachers. I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. They were committed to him. And this kind of bonding ought to happen where you love your learners like a mother loves her little chicks. That's what Paul speaks of himself as being later on in the text. I was a mother to you. And they ought to love you as someone who would devote their life to you. That's the kind of bonding that ought to take place in Christian teaching in our churches. That's what was happening in Galatia. And this is what befuddled the Apostle Paul so much. Now, lastly, in verses 17 through 20, see that he says uh, that we should remember uh, our love. I'm sorry, remember their love for you. Remember your teacher's love for you. Now, Christian teachers are, A, not zealous for themselves. 
Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. Heretics are zealous for their own cuteness, their own cleverness. I I notice with almost every heretic and everyone who's got some quirky theological teaching that they're unrepentantly hanging on to, they really enjoy being cute and being different. They really enjoy turning their back on the crowd. They enjoy drawing attention to themselves. I almost always find that trait involved with heresy. They're not zealous for Christ. They're not zealous for you. They're really zealous for themselves to be clever, to be innovative, to be new, to be more intelligent than everybody else. It's amazing if you look at liberal scholarship in the universities and colleges. They're all standing over the text, judging it, and telling us whether it's really God's Word or it's not God's Word. And those who are your teachers who really teach you, teach you Christ, are standing under the text in reverence for God and His Word and simply seeking to understand the meaning of what God has revealed. And there's a very different stance. And Paul is saying here that true teachers are not zealous for themselves. These Judaizers were simply jealous for their own partisan purposes. Secondly, these teachers who are Christian teachers, real spiritual teachers, are zealous for your good. It is fine to be zealous, he says, verse 18, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always and not just when I am with you. My dear children. He calls them dear children. He is zealous for their good. I don't know about your mama. Well, I actually do know about your mama because mamas are pretty much the same way, just like my mama. She wants to know I'm getting along fine. She's interested in everything in my life. And those of you who have lost your mamas, I'm sorry. That's a huge loss. I haven't lost mine yet. And knowing my mama, I'll probably go before she does. But my mama cares about my welfare. And she has permission to ask me anything she wants to ask me. And she asks me these embarrassing questions that no other grown woman would ever ask me, including my wife. She wants to know how I'm doing. She cares about me. And I tell you what, when she asks, I answer. (laughs) And the reason I do is I know she cares about me. And I know she has a right to care about me because the woman bore me into this world and changed my diapers. And I'm still accounting to her. And Paul says, this is the love I have for you. And gentlemen, those of you who are teaching in a variety of places, whether it's one person or a hundred, there's got to be an affection for the people. There's got to be a caring about the outcome. It's not just getting your lesson across or trying to present something that won't embarrass you too much. It's seeking their welfare. This is what the teacher does. And thirdly, they were zealous for Christ, and this is the most important thing. He says, for whom, my dear children, for whom, verse 19, I am again in the pains of childbirth. Why is it so painful? Because he wants Christ to be formed in them. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. He is longing to see Jesus Christ formed in their hearts. This is the ultimate goal. It's not that they would be happy. It's not that they would have all kinds of pleasure. It's not that everything would work right for them, that their grass blades would grow at the same rate and they can cut them all off at one week. Life is just going perfectly. The car never breaks down. Their children are all obedient. No, here's what's important. That Christ is formed in them. That's what he's longing for. And he can see it in their lives when they are Christ-like, not Paul-like, Christ-like. 
That's what you're looking for. That's the fruit of our labor. That's our commitment. That's our longing and our desire. And we take delight when we see Christ formed in people. And we take it as a burden when we see them turning away from Christ's likeness. That's the heart of the one who is influencing other people for good. Is that our ultimate concern is for His glory. Because God gets glory when human beings bow down to Him and trust Him and love Him and serve Him as His sons and His slaves happily because in slavery to Christ alone we find our freedom. Let us pray. Father, thank You for the goodness of the Gospel. We confess many moments every week when we take a glance to the other side and wonder what it would be like to go back. And we ask for Your forgiveness for our foolishness and for our hard-heartedness and pray that once again You'll help us to remember the good things of the Gospel and remember those from whom we learned it and recommit ourselves even today to the basic idea that You are Lord and we are Yours. We pray in Jesus' name.